Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I am delighted to feature a social justice curator. Her name is Jasmine Wahi. Jasmine is a curator, an educator, an activist, and a TEDx speaker. She is committed to activate change and support artists who work to educate our society about important issues that confront women and people of color every single day, issues that historically have not been discussed openly in art. An example, January 2020, she curated an exhibition titled Abortion is Normal, which was organized to raise awareness and funding in support of accessible, safe, and legal abortion. Artists included Marilyn Minter, Nan Golden, Carrie Mae Weems, Cindy Sherman, and others. Also in 2020, Jasmine joined the Bronx Museum of Art as the Holly Block Social Justice Curator. This is another platform for her to support artists and the social issues confronting the surrounding communities. Going back 10 years to 2010, while in her early 20s, Jasmine co-founded Project for Empty Space, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that promotes artists whose works are oriented around social impact. This all proves that Jasmine's commitment to do the right thing is not about who she has become, but instead who she is. With that, enjoy this episode. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining me. I'm just tickle pink and excited to feature you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So I'm going to introduce you as a social justice curator, educator, and activist. And I'm delighted to feature you because your voice is, is an important one for us during this time with the protests and the movements. Uh, you can help us understand how artists, uh, the role they play. So let's start with you telling us how your aunt uh, influenced you. Sure. Um, so I guess I would say it's my, my aunt, my mother's sister, um, as well as I guess my mother and my grandmother's, but really, um, my aunt was working um, when I was, I guess, before I was born um, at the Smithsonian in the Sackler Museum of Asian Art. Um, and that's pretty much where I grew up. I grew up in D.C. where all of the museums are free. Um, and I spent a lot of my childhood basically as a museum baby. Um, <laughs> and then wow. in the house that I grew up in, um, I have heard, I have very vague recollections of this, but I've heard that when I was maybe six or seven, um, I made my own porch museum. 
and I called it the Sackler Gallery of Art and I invited all of the neighbors to come and I guess that was the beginning of the end for me um you know they say the things that you do in kindergarten are what you end up doing in life and for me that's absolutely true um and so she was definitely a role model um my mother who won't admit that she's a creative person is actually incredibly creative and um also uh you know a leader in many ways um as was her mother and so i think i'd take after all three of them in my I guess, entrepreneurial um, inklings, as well as my artistic uh, interests. So yeah, I guess all three of them. Yeah. So, so tell us about your position, your role. Define your role as a um, social justice curator. Sure. Um, so I guess maybe I'll go back a little bit. In addition to being the Holly Block social justice curator at the Bronx Museum, I've been doing social justice curatorial work for probably 10, almost 11 years now. Um, I started an organization back in 2010 called Project for Empty Space, which is now housed in Newark um, and is dedicated to social activism through art. So we work with artists who are interested in social discourse um, as well as activism and so I have that. And then I most recently at the Bronx Museum as sort of with the official title, Social Justice Curator. Um, and really what it means to me is, again, this idea of creating activism or activist dialogue through artists who have similar interests. Um, and my approach as a curator when thinking about audiences, because audiences are often our primary focus, um, my approach is to look at an audience in a multi-centric way, as opposed to thinking about a singular audience. And the shows that I make now are really multi-centric, but intersectional and intersectional. Um, and try to serve the communities that perhaps selfishly I see myself as part of, um, as well as communities that historically have been left out of the institutional narrative or the institutional space. And so part of my activism is not only making shows to serve those communities, um, with an emphasis on the plurality of communities, but also to create shows that have topics that are relevant and meaningful um, to the multitude of communities. And so that means addressing everything from social justice to healthcare to joy within communities of color um, and kind of everything in between. But again, with that focus of speaking to the communities that have been historically left out or invisibilized. Can you give us an, an example of the type of work that would be included in that type of show or exhibition? Sure. Okay. Um, I'll tell you, I'll give you two examples. One, a forthcoming show and one previous. 
that way. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, let me think, for a previous show, um, an exhibition, I would say the exhibition that I'm probably best known for most recently um, is one that I actually co-curated with a few people called Abortion is Normal. Um, And that exhibition is soon to be followed up with another exhibition, which may be online only or maybe in real life, we'll see. Um, But really it was an exhibition about reproductive health and body autonomy um, with over 55 artists. Um, And that was actually this January, which seems like a different lifetime. Um, Similarly, several years ago, I did a group show with my partner at Project for Empty Space called Empower Dynamics, which was again about women's empowerment, um, moving from the margins to the middle and centering um, intersectional feminism and and feminist power um, through the lens of, I think, eight or nine different artists. Um, And coming up at the Bronx Museum, one show that I'm particularly excited about is a show on ball culture, um, which really started in northern Manhattan in the Bronx. And it's looking at the history of ball and vogue culture through multiple lenses. So through the lenses of people who really formed that community, um, who have only, as far as I can tell, had their stories up until now told through the voices of other people. And so I'm trying to create an exhibition that is, for lack of a better term, FUBU, so for us and by us, that really, I think, brings to light a narrative or multiple narratives through the people who have actually lived those experiences um, and through the people who formed those communities. Now, I will say with any type of exhibition like that and any type of exhibition that is community-oriented or sharing the narrative of a particular community, there's always this tendency or this line between exploitation or exotification of a group of people Mm -hmm. and really what the true story is. And I'm hyper aware of that um, as a potential maybe negative side or backlash um, as part of this exhibition making. But, you know, I think sometimes the two those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. Um, And I think that is part of being a social justice curator is acknowledging those um, biases and those potentials for, for problems. Do you, do you have uh, situations where the artist disagrees with, with your opinion, if you feel a work is inappropriate? Um, That's a great question. You know, I actually don't. I I don't think I have instances where I have censored um, an artist. And I think that's because I want 
I want artists to be able to express as they see fit. Um, and as a curator, <laughs> to my own detriment, I'm sort of, my position is not the, at the center of the exhibition process. I'm just kind of the idea maker. Mm -hmm. um, and so what the artist wants is generally what the artist gets. Right, right. <laughs> hey, everybody has a different perspective, right? I mean, you never know when you're right or wrong. <laughs> exactly. I, I take the mostly democratic approach. Um, mm -hmm. I think curating <laughs> is a... It, there, are many, there are many people that go into making an exhibition, and I don't like my ideas to be, um, I guess, the you know, I don't want to have the final word, although I often do have the final word. Um, you know, I don't want to sort of be a dictator in the exhibition process. I think it's a collaborative effort. Yeah, yeah, that sounds smart. And I'm sure the <laughs> artists appreciate that. So I want to circle back to the topic of intersectional feminist frameworks. Sure. If you could define that for us, but also I'm curious if you have seen differences in how that's reflected in an artist's work if we compare an emerging female artist versus mid-career, late-career female mm -hmm. artists. Like the, the younger generations versus those women who were actually creating art or around during the feminist movement. Sure. So I'll start with the sort of my short version of intersectional feminism as a framework. Um, so intersectional feminism is actually a, a term coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a legal scholar, um, and she termed this coin in 1989, if I remember correctly. Um, and basically what it means is that we are all pluralistic and uh, multidimensional people. So we all have multiple identities. For example, I identify as female. I am South Asian American. Um, I am educated um, or I have educational privilege. Um, I am middle class, although no one knows what that means in New York City anymore. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm all of these different things. And this the theory of intersectional feminism is that sometimes these particular identifiers work together in collusion to put us at a disadvantage relative to other people. And the example that Dr. Crenshaw uses in her sort of seminal text around this within the legal framework is the instance of a class action lawsuit by Black women working in a Detroit auto plant who brought a case of wage discrimination because they were getting paid both less than their white female counterparts and their black male counterparts. So they were sort of on the lowest rung uh, of the, the pay scale. And what happened was the courts couldn't decide if it was a case of gender discrimination or racial discrimination and, you know, it kind of went nowhere. But the reality of the fact uh, that Dr. Crenshaw argues is that it was actually both. It was these intersections of being Black and being female that ultimately put them at a further disadvantage relative to their counterparts. 
And the reality of the fact of the society that we live in is we live in a vertically hierarchical society where we're compared to people based on where we scale next to them um, in terms of our identifiers. So race, gender, economics, ability, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of that (laughs) from a artistic perspective um, and how I think about curating goes into the way that I look at every single show um, and every single artist in that show. So if I'm creating a show within a social framework um, about, I don't know, uh, about COVID, for example, um, although that's kind of upsetting show to curate, but just as an example. Um, one of the things I would make sure to address is the types of artwork and the positions of the artist or the artwork that the artists are making and does it address these sort of ideas of systemic oppression and intersectionalities. So we know that the rates of COVID amongst communities of color, particularly Black and Latinx communities is much higher than it is in affluent white communities. And that is part of an entire system of oppression that exists within this intersectional framework. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So as a curator, I'm conscientious of including all of those complexities because without acknowledging them, then we're basically whitewashing and we're also flattening a dialogue that is very important. Um, And so the intersectional framework, I think, basically takes everything that we see as a sort of single serving or flat narrative and expands it and creates a sort of depth and dimension that is really what makes conversations and dialogue and social discourse more interesting because we can't sort of, we can't silo our various identities. They all work together Um, and we can't silo our experiences. So why should we silo conversations around art and artistic practice? I don't know if that answered your question. Yes, but I'm still curious about if you see. Oh yes, the second part of your question. How how young, uh, emerging versus established versus, you know, artists, female artists, how that's reflected in their work. I do think, so I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about younger, sort of chronologically younger artists um, is that they seem to be more aware of the theory of intersectionality and sort of some of the complexities that go into the current feminist moment. And when I say feminism, I often just say feminism, but what I mean is intersectional feminism, mm-hmm. because I, I don't believe that you can be a feminist without acknowledging intersectionality. Um, and so I think there's more of an education and a language around this concept of intersectionality and these concepts of, of vertical hierarchies that younger people are more aware of. And if you think about it, Dr. Crenshaw created this language in 1989. So it's, you know, it postdates a lot of the feminist movement that right. was happening. Yeah. Yeah. 
what I've noticed about artists who are from the sort of second or, or even third wave of feminists, you know, artists who are maybe in their um, 50s, 60s, and 70s, is they have a very different perspective on what feminism is. Um, I don't think that it is a wrong perspective. I think it, in my opinion, can feel slightly myopic. And when I say that, I don't mean that in a sort of pejorative way. Um, I mean that to say that there was a very specific focus at the time of that feminist movement, which was gender. And it wasn't so much necessarily acknowledging the other factors in identities. And when I say that, it also has to be taken with a grain of salt because I'm referring mostly to older white feminist artists. I think artists, black feminist artists or womanist artists were extremely aware of these types of intersections, but at the same time, they weren't getting the type of attention that white feminist artists were. And the amount of attention that those feminist artists were getting was also almost nothing. So, you know, again, you have these kind of built up hierarchies and now in the moment, what I've observed um, with a lot of my older feminist artist friends is that they are evolving, um, but they're also going through, I think, a bit of a, a self-reckoning. I've encountered some women who have felt very affronted by the idea of intersectionality. I've had some sort of unpleasant experiences mm. um, with, with people like that who feel that the contemporary moment is kind of dismissing all of the work that they have done um, rather than realizing that, you know, histories again are plural. So acknowledging a new idea doesn't erase work that's already been done. But I've also met um, several artists who are really open and really trying to, I think, sort of recalibrate how they've thought about feminism and how they've thought about equity and equality within the art world um, and recognizing that there are different levels of privilege. Um, and so I think it's been, you know, it's been really interesting to see these generational paradigms um, because they definitely exist, but, you know, it, they don't exist across the board. Well, yes, yeah, some people are capable of being introspective and learning and some people aren't. Right, exactly. Some people are rigid. Some people are life learners, you know. Exactly. So, so on, on the topic of learning and education, what's your opinion on like current day curriculum as it pertains to art history, like traditional? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, as a faculty member, I think about this a lot. I think I have probably thought about it since I started really learning about art history, which was in high school. Um, you know, art history was kind of a, academic savior for me um, because I was a terrible math 
science student and somehow with art history, everything clicked. <laughs> um, but, you know, everything I learned from high school on, with the exception of electives or what would sort of be special classifications, was centered around Western uh, European Eurocentric art history. And I think that does a great detriment to learning about that and that being sort of the canon instead of a canon mm-hmm. um, is really detrimental because it only shows a part of the picture of what sort of the vast expanse of art history is. Um, and I'll give you some examples and I'm, you know, I don't know what undergrad programs, their survey texts are like now. Hopefully they're different than they were when I was an undergrad or even in grad school. Um, but survey texts used to be completely Eurocentric and then they would have one or two little sections about African art, which would be, you know, like 10 pages out of 2000 or, um, Pacific Islander art or Asian art and Asian art would include all aspects, you know, from parts of Russia all the way to, you know, Japan and beyond. And again, all of these sections would be in like 10 pages. Um, And, you know, for someone who is coming from a different background that is not European um, or white, it, paints a completely disingenuous picture. And I think to really grasp the full depth, not only of various histories, but various visual lexicons that actually really end up informing one another and we don't really talk about it that much, um, we have to basically decolonize the curriculum. Um, It's very rare, well, again, maybe I'm dating myself, but. I remember learning about Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon first in high school and never really knowing at that time that Picasso was heavily influenced by African art. Um, In fact, that was sort of the crux of what he was borrowing from. Um, I mean, borrowing is, I guess, the diplomatic way of putting it, but the assertion that Picasso came up with cubism is, I think, a false narrative in many ways. It was new and revelatory for Europeans, but really what he was doing was appropriating um, a visual lexicon that already existed. But if we don't know about that, then we continue to perpetuate this idea, again, of a hierarchy that is, um, that's false. And I think it's, you know, it's unfair historically. Um, and I think there's just a lot lost when we don't acknowledge all of the sort of intersecting or influential aspects of the discipline. Right. right. So I advocate for either expanding it all or tearing it all down and starting <laughs> from the ground up. <laughs> I don't know what's what was more uh, challenging, but um, hey, <laughs> yeah, you, just, just you never know. There's movements taking place, so things are changing, um, right? And eventually they can change slowly, but 
you know, in, in the schools. Um, so this has been a great conversation. I think that I could talk to you all night, and that's why I love people in the art world. But before we, we wind down, I, I want to talk about your project for Empty Space in Newark and combine that um, discussion with how you want to impact the communities. Sure. Um, okay. Uh, well, like I said, I started it a little over 10 years ago, or I, we came up with the idea about a little over 10 years ago. Um, and its purpose when it originally started as a nomadic project was, I, I guess, in some ways to kind of decolonize or decentralize the art world from the museum and gallery space. Um, and although I work for a museum now, I have always thought of museums as spaces to preserve kind of a hegemonic structure, this kind of monolith that wasn't necessarily for um, people like me, unless you're talking about, you know, ancient art or antiquities. And so that's how it started out. And gradually um, we, would, we did projects in a couple different places around the world collaboratively. Ultimately, we ended up in Newark, which is where we are now um, in our new home. Um, which is a brick and mortar space. And we've combined uh, a gallery program that is kind of filled by a residency program that we have. We actually have two residency programs. Um, one is sort of a general artist activist residency program. And then we also a few years ago started something called the Feminist Incubator um, that is a shorter term residency that brings together between four and six female identified artists to work within the framework of feminism mm -hmm. to do new projects or to ideate on previous projects. Um, and we have a, we have this sort of reading room filled with intersectional material. Um, and then in addition to that, we also have these subsidized studios um, that we subsidize so that they're affordable for artists in the tri-state area to come and have a workspace because it's so hard to find in New York anymore. Um, and so really what we are aiming to do is to create more of an artist community with artists who are as interested in social equity and social discourse as we are. Um, we being myself and my co-director, Rebecca Jample. Um, and so I think that interest that I have that's kind of the foundation for Project for Empty Space is really the interest I have kind of holistically as a curator. Um, you know, I went, I grew up in a Quaker school environment. Um, and so I think the idea of service and um, social activism are really at the heart of who I am as a person. Um, and that just translates into my work. And so I want, I want to be able to create shows or have exhibitions that are catalytic to conversation oops, and conversations and hopefully systemic change either at the micro level or even, you know, wishful thinking, but at a macro level. Um, to make exhibitions for communities so that they feel welcome, um, so that they feel really 
seen and also heard. Um, and, you know, and just hope that that creates a conduit for visibility for people like me. So I want to just sneak in one more quick little question. Uh, so I, yeah. I read uh, someone's uh, comment that it has accumulated a cult following. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I appreciate that sentiment. Um, I do. I guess in some ways what we've done, we're not the first to do what we do, but maybe one of the things that makes us different and kind of appealing um, to people is that we kind of just do what we want and we do what we think is right. So a quick example is a couple of years ago, 2016, um, there was another rash of police violence and um, fatal violence against Black people. Um, and we decided at that time we had a gallery space in the train station in Newark um, that about 30,000 people walk by a day. And so we put Black Lives Matter up in the windows. And we got a lot of, a lot of heat for it um, from a lot of different people. Um, but our philosophy is that we don't really answer, we don't really answer to anyone except for our communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so everything we do is born not out of a concern about how it looks or, I mean, how it looks uh, to the man, I guess, for to, lack to, the, of to those words. that disagree. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, we're very conscientious of censoring our communities. Um, as opposed to anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe I'll, I'll end on this as a sort of personal philosophy that I came to a few years ago, um, which was I no longer do things, I no longer make exhibitions or programs for people to change their minds about something that they may already have a fixed mindset about. Like, I'm not going to try and change someone's mind who's staunchly pro-life to try and convince them to be pro-choice, as an example. Um, you know, I make things, I create things in solidarity, in communion and camaraderie with my community to demonstrate to them that there are other people who agree with them. Mm -hmm. um, there are other people who agree with us. And so that's kind of how I operate. Um, as an individual curator and also how Project for Empty Space operates as an organization. And I guess maybe people like that. <laughs> well, you're certainly focusing all your energy on the right things, right? Right. Thank you. right. Why try to convince somebody of something that, you know, that is going to be resistant? Just right. support those that, you know, that have to have, uh, that, that think the same way and get a lot more accomplished and be much more impactful. Uh, this has been fantastic. Um, thank you. Thank you, thank so, you so much. much. It's, uh, it's great to hear your perspective on things. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. Thank you.